My name is Alex Henderson. I'm the security analyst at Needham. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have uh, Fastly here. Uh, we're going to do a fireside chat. Um, we have both uh, Josh Bixby, the CEO, and uh, Adriel, uh, uh, the CFO. And um, if you want to ask questions, uh, we'd love to have you as interactive as possible. And uh, the less questions coming from me, the better. <laughs> uh, I've got 26 of these things, so I'm happy to happy to take a back seat. But uh, there's two ways you can do that. Uh, you can email me at ahenderson at needhamco.com. I'll keep my email uh, uh, partially visible, uh, which is not ever easy to do on these computers, but I'll try to, uh, as well as uh, use the, uh, the question box uh, down below. Uh, and with that, uh, welcome, guys. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, let me start off with uh, the obvious uh, question, which is um, stocks had a much larger hit than the average uh, high-flying tech stock. I think some of that has to do with people's perceptions of, uh, you know, you being uh, a beneficiary of last year's uh, closed market and maybe not being as much of a benefit going forward. I frankly think, it, to, my, to me, it looks like a big opportunity to the extent that you're obviously uh, uh, very well tied into the, the broader community for coding and uh, and microservice-based uh, delivery of uh, uh, your technology. And uh, when you get a sell-off like this, it's usually a great opportunity. So uh, with that, uh, can you give us a little bit of a, you know, color on what's happened, why the stock has reacted that way, and, uh, and you know, how, how temporary do you think the, uh, the, the current uh, pers uh, pressures are? Alex, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, uh... I, you know, I think if you if you look at our core business, which is where about your experience everywhere around the world being fast and secure, um, like if you just if you just extract out to that high level, I think what you see is everyone wants the world to fit into these two camps. You either benefited from COVID or you didn't benefit from COVID, and right. and, and and therefore your future trajectory is impacted by one of those two. Fastly's in this incredibly unique position. We benefited from COVID because your experiences everywhere around the world, fast and secure, became really important. But what we're also seeing is coming out of COVID, we're seeing that that same underlying trend is accelerating for a number of industries. And so we're in a strange position, I think, which is taking the market some time to comprehend, which is not only are we benefiting, then we benefit from COVID, we're benefiting on the way out. And if you look at what we said by increasing annual guidance and talking about the acceleration we're seeing in Q3 and Q4, that is very different than a COVID stock. I mean, a lot of stocks that are focused on selling, whether it's masks or plexiglass, I mean, it's gonna be a tough mask and plexiglass environment, we believe in Q3 and Q4. We don't believe it's gonna be a difficult environment based on what we see today for companies that are leading the trend on this new architecture of how the internet's coming together. So I believe there's just a little bit of a misunderstanding perhaps about how you could fit into both camps. Um, and we certainly feel extremely optimistic about, about uh, our horizon because we didn't build this thing to grow for a pandemic. We didn't build this thing to grow for a year. We have you know, now recently hit our 10 year anniversary and every year as we have been a public company, we've accelerated our growth. Um, we believe that there are um, many, many years of high growth here. Just to put that into context, Fastly has just under 400, or just under 400 enterprise customers. If you look at our largest competitor, um, just directly in sort of a, a small view of our space, that there's 10X more. If you start expanding the view and saying who needs 
fast and secure web experiences, that is every organization in the world at any meaningful scale. And so 400 compared to hundreds of thousands of potential customers put us, our perspective is we're in the early innings. So we're investing and we see tremendous growth opportunities and that um, gives us a lot of confidence. Uh, one of the things that I think that people don't really comprehend very much is just how important your relationship into the coding community is. And the differential between that 120,000 uh, people or companies out there that are, uh, you know, greater than 2,000 employees that um, uh, you could potentially target, you guys actually have a fairly differentiated uh, customer base where you tend to be more to the born in the cloud companies you tend to be tied into companies that are driving microservice-based Kubernetes-deployed, um, cloudy, uh, multi-tenant type architectures in their businesses. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how important that part of your business is? Because I think that's really where you guys shine. Yeah, and, and you make a great point. I mean, this whole, what was traditionally the developer and operator or DevOps movement, which is now actually DevOps, this idea that all these teams are coming together and they are consuming products similar in some ways to how we consume consumer products. I mean, you don't have this huge heavy lift when you go sign up to try an app. Um, you know, it's, it's easy. You can do it online. You don't have to talk to a salesperson. You can upgrade it if you want to get to the next level. You can see everything from pricing to documentation, everything transparent. So there's an entire community of people that work within large enterprises who obviously have, you know, larger, more plotting procurement and security organizations. But we have within that this energy that gets products in. And if you look at our history, we have an incredible history. You look at our dollar-based net expansion, our last 12 months of uh, NRR, you see that once we're able to get into organizations, which we do, as you say, through these fluid channels, which I think we have a tremendous advantage, we're able to take that and build upon it extremely strong enterprise stickiness and growth. So as a business, we have less than 1% revenue churn on an annual basis. As we look at our past year, you have these incredible cohort growth, and you're right. The secret to that has always been that when I walk into a decision-making meeting, for example, with another C-level executive, I have an entire population who has tried my uh, our products, who has used it, and who love it. And that's not only the case on the delivery side of our business, but even more importantly, on the security side. Because there are a lot of people out there, as you know, selling magic beans in the security business. And to be able to try something before you commit to huge appliances that, that you have no way to get out of for five or 10 years, I mean, it's, it's a really a different way to think of the market. And we've been, we've been able to gain, gain real strength. And I see that accelerating. We just hired a new chief revenue officer, and I'm seeing that accelerating um, in our business. The net number of new additions uh, this quarter was really encouraging. So if I were to think about that positioning, I kind of draw a parallel between what Okta did with the Auth0 acquisition. Uh, Okta had a huge position in reaching the CIO, CTO type, selling a particular product. But increasingly the world, on, particularly on the consumer side of it, was shifting more to a DevOps driven model. And they didn't have that skill set to reach uh, you know, the consumer application websites and consumer uh, type of uh, transactions where identity needed to be fe feathered into it. 
And that area is actually much higher growth than the enterprise side. Um, it seems to me that you are much more like the Auth0 side than the old Okta side in that context. Uh, is that a fair way to think about it? Yeah, I think it's an interesting comparison. You know, we're, we have a really strong partnership with Okta and just deeply, Great company. Yeah, deeply admire their business and how they're going about it. I think one of the diff, one of the unique qualities of Fastly is we have that bottoms up energy, but because we are the enterprise company, the modern enterprise company, we also have a little bit of the enterprise capability as well. So because the decisions that our customers make are so important when they choose to go on our platform. I mean, when, during the IPO, I was, I was asked questions and, and still am by media, like um, if, if Fastly goes down, uh, will we hear about it? And the answer is you'll hear about it when Fastly's back up because the media that you consume, the websites that tell you this information <laughs> come down with us. So we are so central right. to the functioning of the internet that these decisions are not made, even though we have this ground up energy, they're not decisions that are exclusively made by any individual engineer. I mean, often we have to go to the sea level. So I think what's interesting about us is we're sort of a little bit of a combination of both um, in how I see us grow. Now, as you know, our approach to the SMBs business is really different. We believe deeply in partners. So tomorrow you were out to build a website, you had a hobby, you wanted to start up a little e-commerce store. We believe today and in the future, it is much smarter for you to go get a Magento, a Shopify, a Wix, or one of these platforms that allows you to, at a click of a button with an easy button, have all of the integrated security delivery capabilities that you need to deliver your store. So Fastly is making tremendous inroads into that community. We just do it by getting one customer who then has a million, as opposed to going and getting them individually. That's exactly the same approach on the developer. Many developers want to have a place where they can host their code and talk to the world. Instead of doing that one-off, we go to we, we partner with deep relationships with Microsoft, for example, GitHub, and we have a relationship there. So. Um, some of that velocity that we're seeing, these new customers, these millions of customers, you just don't see that in our customer numbers, but it's actually how it's playing out in the field. Right, that's, a, that's an excellent point. So when I think about you know, the adoption of Kubernetes, uh, which I use as a generic term for all of the various flavors of Kubernetes, uh, all the way out to serverless, um, it's pretty clear that that is sharply accelerating. Um, the statistics we like to cite, uh, is that there's roughly 700 million to a billion applications globally. They're growing at about a 30% annual pace, which is a lot of new applications. And that the penetration of Kubernetes, which I think was 15% or less in 19, uh, has now crossing into the 25% plus range on its way to in excess of 50%, probably in 23, 24 timeframe. Now, when I put those two numbers together, that implies the growth rate of applications combined with the penetration rate of modern architectures, microservice-based technologies, that you're looking at a triple-digit end market growth rate there, which you guys tap into in a, in a unique fashion. Um, can you talk about the uptake of uh, your, your programming skills and your programming languages and how people are, are, are looking at that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think deep insight in, into this trend, which is we say is people are being for, people are moving um, and being forced based on customer demand to really focus on the primitives of the future. I mean, how will these applications 
be delivered. And I think there's some really interesting threads in those statistics. The first is people want portability, right? They want to be wanted the ability to move workloads um, to benefit their business. They also are really eager to find ways to not have lock-in, right? I mean, if you really look at what Kubernetes does in some ways, it allows you to avoid lock-in, which is something our customers are talking a lot about. cloud yeah. Yeah, right, and have a multi-cloud environment. I think one of the other things is by going to a microservices-based approach, you can you can apply, you can have the right workload right work at the right level. And, and in traditionally, as you know, we used to have a myopic view that all the code we wrote had to live on a web application or database server housed in a central location. I mean, for 25 years, that was the way we thought about workloads. When you look at Computed Edge and the work that we've done for 10 years at the edge in bringing compute there, we have helped really galvanize this energy that hold on folks, there aren't just you know, web application, database servers, and the end device, right? Which we now see is so powerful. There's actually this, this additional layer. And that layer can work in harmony. This is a layer where our developers that use our product can trust that these environments are compliant, that they meet their requirements, that they have the resources they need. And so we're really looking at architectures which span from the device all the way back to the database server with very important workloads being run at the edge. The workloads that need to scale, and that have this security mentality, because we know that by having security at that perimeter, we can make a significant difference. So I guess I would say all of this is pushing us towards really this true essence of serverless, which is a word that is very confusing because serverless has servers. What it means is our developers don't have to worry in the same, or our companies don't have to worry in the way they used to about making sure those resources were in the right place and, at the, and scaled in the right way. That's our job. So we worry about the servers, we have them in the right place, and we ensure they're ready to scale. And when you can gain that trust, which we have with the largest organizations in the world, you unlock so much creativity because you're not, you know, I need to provision a thousand servers in Tokyo. Okay, that's a six month process. Like, you don't have to worry about any of that. We've got that covered. We have a huge network, we've got it. And you can now, with the advent of computed edge, you can now run those workloads wherever you would like. It's a, it's a very exciting time. Well, so let me throw uh, a, a, a phrasing uh, in front of it, but I've got a question from uh, the audience that, uh, that ties into computed edge, but um, I think your nearest, uh, largest, large competitor, uh, brand A, if we will, uh, went out with a comment uh, uh, recently that they expected that today, less than 10% of applications are at the edge. And I think the number was in five years, they thought it would be 50% plus at the edge. Um, so can you talk a little bit about uh, the cases uh, you've seen uh, so far for computed edge and just define what computer at, compute at edge is for those who might not know what it is. Yeah, so in general, when you look at an edge cloud, one of the capabilities of an edge cloud is the ability to take code written by developers and run it at edges. There are many edges. For us, we think of ourselves as the developer's edge, the last place in this line where we are close to users and it can be trusted by the engineering organization in the enterprise in the world. So when you look at the use cases, they really bucket into a few categories. One is really easy for all of us to understand. We know that traditionally e-commerce has gone between this balancing act of, I want to make things fast and I want to make them personal. 
And the reason that they actually have this dilemma is because personalization happens where the logic lives, which is down in the central location. And performance, we know it's just way faster if I can deliver it right next to you. We, that's just pure business. And so what we've seen is a drive for the sort of the, um, the, the perfect solution where I can get personalization to happen at the edge. And that's really what compute allows these organizations to do. So when you go to a personalized web page, why does that page have to transact all the way back to the central server in order to determine what you have access to, what you should see, what's recommended? Actually, that's not necessary when you can add the type of communication. So that's one example. I think we see other examples also proliferating. We see examples of actually data compliance, right? I'm a user that comes from a certain country. I don't want them to have access to content that's only available in a different country, or I don't want users to access the data, or I want the data out only in a specific location. This world of multiple geographically distributed internet that are that are country-based is something that is not new, but we're seeing a real acceleration. These are really hard problems for organizations to grapple with on the data and compliance. So that's another thing. We're certainly seeing some really interesting um, use cases. Sorry, I heard that my audio went wonky for a second. Um, is that better? Alex, sorry. Um, we're also hearing some really interesting use cases as well around um, the application of machine learning at the edge. So we know that if you take, you know, some of these sort of tropey machine learning examples, like I'm gonna go train a I'm gonna go train a team to tell me within a picture, as an example. So I take a picture, I, I take a billion pictures, I run it through machine learning algorithms, and then I can give it a new picture and say, hey, is there a hot dog in this picture? Well, the reality is all of that training is incredibly compute intensive. But the inferencing from the model, you actually can do in at the edge for performance. Another area that's really exciting is actually security use cases. So imagine today, security is very much a centralized um, structure where we've got requests coming in, they hit one central location, we make some decisions that actually take some of the agility away. We're actually better at the edge to be making some of those decisions. And so we have decision-making engines. We've got human security um, in our most recent announcement talk about what we can bring. We talked about that use case, it's incredible because you know, the largest uh, organizations in the world are facing huge uh, adverse. We know that it's a massive issue. How do you get around it? Well, what's the best place to what's the best place to mitigate that? I should say, at the edge. So we're seeing lots of different use cases. I believe over time, the statistics that we're seeing in the industry, which is that we're at it for the early days right now, and we are moving to a mass adoption phase. That's certainly what we're seeing as well. So uh, another question came in on on computed edge. Uh, I have a couple of questions uh, teeing up, but might as well stay on that one subject first. Um, the question is, and I think it's a it's a good one. How are how is uh, your uh, offering at computed edge uh, different than say Cloudflare workers? Sure. So in the industry, we do sort of sets of, of requirements. I don't think I hesitate to say better work. I think. Everyone's building for their customer, right? And so I don't think this is a better or worse context. I would say for a certain customer that doesn't have a huge scale, that doesn't have the security requirements that um, that some of the sort of larger enterprise customers have, you have a certain type of solution. It's lightweight, you mix all these requests together, um, it maybe doesn't start up that quickly, but that's okay because the needs aren't for hyper scale. 
you have a completely different category of customers who are the largest in the world, and they have different requirements. So I would sort of put it into the perspective of large enterprise requirements, which are different than non-large enterprise requirements. So if you look at the two camps, and it's not just us and you know Plato, there's there's an emerging um, energy here. Uh, you can see that, for example, with with uh, organization that we have started, the Micro Alliance, Microsoft recently joined. Intel is a part of. Like we are, we we are getting people in one orbit, which is WebAssembly, the orbit of WebAssembly, which is very much geared to these incredibly high um, scale, high uh, highly burdened, highly high security burdened sort of workload where security really matters. And you have a more lightweight scale. And so if you look at it, I'd say there's a couple really important elements. Performance is the perfect. How how performance is so exactly, we can't go back to our customers and say, you know, um, it's only going to be performant if you do um, a few requests. Well, we have to be performant for the, for the largest workloads in the world. So performance is the consistency of that performance. You'll see in one camp, you know, the world's highest performance. You'll see another camp, a lot of restrictions. You can only do a little bit of this. You can't do a lot of that. So that's performance. You also have scale, which goes hand in hand with performance. So again, I can't limit you. Many of the competitor sets have limits. You can only do a thousand of these. You can only do a thousand in each location. And then, really importantly, for our enterprise customers, is around security. So we believe each of these request responses needs to be in their own sandbox environment. Others believe it's okay to mix them together. The danger of mixing them together, of course, is if you mix them together, you you have one code base that can help intercept or see what's happening in another area, and you have the challenge of Spectre and Meltdown type attacks being really prolific in those kind of commingled environments. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't come back to better or worse. I think certain, certain workloads require a certain level of scale, security, and performance, and certain others don't. And that, I think, is more of a workload question. We, we specialize in um, you know, those that really need uh, high scale, high performance, and high security. So question uh, came in, um, so everything in the telecom world has ultimately proven to be commodity uh, because someone will be able to figure out how to do it equally as well or better, uh, which pushes pricing down. And I think uh, that's certainly the perception uh, around the CDN industry uh, as you know, pricing of video uh, content being delivered at the edge uh, has gone down as fast as uh, the volume has grown. Uh, resulting in a fairly flattish market. Um, so the question uh, is, what uh, what is it that uh, is your secret sauce that will allow them uh, allow Fastly to gain share at a faster rate than their competition and is more durable? Yeah, I read I read the history differently. Um, I think I think the most prominent story of this history is absolutely the video market, which has been heavily commoditized. I think the less told. Um, but equally important story is to look at what um, Akamai has done on the non-video business, which is they have uh, for 20 years had a business which is not commoditized um, in any meaningful way. They continue to have um, incredible margins in that business. And for 20 years, they've driven uh, a built in a market which is not very competitive because it's hard to do. Not because of anything else, it's just really hard to deliver the largest workloads in the world securely and in a performing way. And so I actually think the history shows a few stories. One story is where it's easy, you're going to get commodification. 
And traditionally, on the video on demand side, especially for organizations that don't have the desire or can't monetize that content in a meaningful way, yeah, they're sitting there trying to find ways to get the cheaper price. That's not the case for a lot of workloads in the world. When you have high value, when you've got a thousand dollar pair of jeans, you know, fading fractions of a penny. Um, if it means maybe not selling as many genes, like you're never going to go down that and that math is work. And so what we have is a bifurcation of two worlds. We've got a commodity world, which has commodity prices. We have a high value world that has high value prices because it's commensurate with the value that's been brought. So the answer is, I don't think that's actually the way history has evolved in our market. I think the answer on the non-video side is it's extremely difficult to deliver the largest most valuable workloads in the world. And ultimately, only two companies have shown that they have that capability, and that's us and Akamai. Now, Akamai has shown this on a massive scale. And we um, you know, are, uh, are certainly um, respectful of how hard that is to build. So I think the answer is why it's hard to do. You need the scale. One of the things about the scale that is so fascinating to me is if we look in the rearview mirror, over the last 10 years, we haven't seen sort of network security and delivery products scale that built on their own networks. And that's because 10 years ago, venture capitalists who were, and angel investors who were the speed of the pipeline stopped, you know, stopped allowing or sort of, um, I guess in, in the other way, they preferred people who would say, I'm going to build this on Amazon or I'm going to build this on Google. But we look in the rearview mirror and having a 130 terabit per second network that is not aligned with the largest cloud players is an incredibly unique asset. Be hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more, at this point, to reproduce that. So you have a moat in the network because we don't have investment. You've got a moat on the technology. And we have a really good example from Lockheed over 20 years. And in fact, this is really hard to do. So I think there's a lot there, and I would sort of disagree with the premise of, of, of how we've seen that evolve. I tend to agree with your position. So the um, next question that came in uh, was, I have a general lack of understanding of how Fastly fits in with hardware and existing platforms, i.e. Uh, AWS and Azure. Can you clarify it? And the question is, will Fastly utilize NVIDIA hardware, software stack, and their network, uh, and you know, how will Fastly Computed Edge handle AI workloads, uh, you know, given uh, you know, the, the processing requirements around them? Yeah, so if you look at our, um, if you look at our position in the ecosystem, we uh, are, you know, as I said, have a huge network, have a tremendous amount of computed our edges, um, along with storage, obviously. That, and, and, and that allows us to have really complementary relationships. So look at our relationship with Google, for example. We go to market together. Um, we know that it is great for our customers to use the Google Cloud. We use Google Cloud. We want our customers to see that value as well. We know that our customers are demanding a multi-cloud environment. One of the ways that they see themselves getting into that position is by having a neutral third party like us be able to load down between the clouds, a place where you can centralize your logging, centralizing uh, your, your key security workloads, such that you don't have to reproduce this over and over and over again in every different workload. So there's a really synergistic relationship. We have product relationships, we have customer relationships with all of the large clouds, and I think we're all understanding 
that we all have an important part to play uh, for, for customers, because what our customers are demanding of us is choice and faculty help deliver that choice. Now, when it comes to AI and, and compute in general, you will see us continue to innovate with uh, our vendors and our partners in this space. So I think over time, we will absolutely see um, more and more compute capabilities and unique sort of custom compute capabilities delivered to the edge. I think that's important and you should, um, you will see more of that from us in the future as well. Let's shift over to the security side. Um, uh, can you just talk a little bit about uh, the signal science acquisition, uh, how customers are responding to it, uh, how it broadens your security platform. Uh, and, you know, I, th I think if we look at the, the broader market for security here, um, there is an increasing need for security uh, to protect uh, the applications uh, across the broader web. Um, how do you see yourself participating in the broader element of domain to domain traffic protection uh, and and optimization uh, and you know beyond just the uh, the edge compute world. Sure, it's a great question. So we've been uh, we've been incredibly um, excited. The signal sciences acquisition has exceeded our expectations. We know because we've been selling security for a number of years how important it is to our customers. So we had a natural uplift. You saw some really nice cross selling and, and enterprise customer engagement on the safe side side. Uh, we talked Pedro talked in the early call about their quarter to quarter growth. I mean, we're really seeing strong numbers there. I think what's really exciting is what you alluded to, which is the future. And if you look at the future, it comes back to a few core principles. Principles Fastly has always kept core. One is we want to build products that work and that do what we say they're going to do. And I know that seems like a low bar, but it's amazing <laughs> how often I will walk into C-level executives who say to me, I just am so happy that your product did what you said it was going to do. It, it's crazy that that's a low bar, but I think in the security space especially, there are a lot of people selling magic beans where when you plant them, they don't turn into what you think they're going to be. There's a lot of hype, there's a lot of overselling. And what we saw in single sciences and what single sciences customers have seen for a long time is how effective the product is. I mean, just to give you an example, most web application firewalls are not in blocking mode, which means that you're having an alarm that you don't turn on. You just see the people that walk in and out of your, of your house, the bad people, and you sort of the next day scroll through a set of logs and say, oh, somebody stole stuff from my house. The reason that's the case is because most of these are incredibly ineffective. They have way too many false positives, and they don't catch the bad things. And so most applications, like, like a, 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 almost the majority of our competitors' web application firewalls are in what's called logging mode. They just log when the bad people come in, and the next day you have to go through and sift through and adjust. I mean, 95% plus of the signal science of the web application firewalls are in blocking mode. Again, for those of you in the audience who are not in the security space, that might seem like, aren't, aren't most alarms on? Aren't most alarms connected to the police departments? Like, no, they're not. And on the internet, we're actually moving to a place where you have security for the for the uh, checkpoints, the sort of checkbox and the and the compliance test. The, the organization is realizing this security has to work. It has to work at scale, and it's got to block block the, the bad players. And that is absolutely critical. 
in your point, the bad players also leverage hopping from one place to another. Um, and so I think collaboration, we just announced a really important collaboration with Okta in terms of sharing data across these platforms, because there are very few of, our, of us that are sort of security-oriented, DevOps-friendly, and secure, secure companies. So I think we are in for an absolute revolution in how these products, all, out will go the appliances, out will go the systems that are only there to meet a PPI-compliant checklist. In will come, and we're already seeing this avalanche of products that work, of products that are, you can build upon to iterate, and that are friendly for this microservices world that we are in. And it's, um, I think we're gonna look back on 2020 and part of 2021 as the catalyst for that. It seems to me that there's uh, three major arenas in this uh, broader security element, uh, which are, Obviously, the web application firewall, but there's also uh, you know you know bot net protection, uh, and then the third one being uh, uh, DDoS protection. Um, can you talk about uh, you know what portion of those three segments you've got uh, good traction in, and where where you see the growth coming from? Yeah, I mean, all three of those are huge areas of of, uh, of traction and investment for So. If we start with the bot side, that has been a core area, Lars. We, we believe as we do all of our product lines and ecosystems, we've got an excellent bot partners that leverage our technology. Uh, we have you know, human security we talked about in our, in our annual quarterly release, which does bot protection for ad fraud and other types of fraud for the largest uh, ad in the world. Very exciting. That's somebody looking at our compute capability, looking at our security capability building on top of us because that allows them to get the global reach that they need in order to defend against the bad. Bot is an area of both investment for FASI, but also of strong partnership. On the web application firewall and WAP markets, I mean, that with a single science acquisition renders us uh, as the best um, from a capabilities perspective. So that is a huge growth area. And do not have always been a strong growth area for FASI. I think one of the areas that we'll continue to see us evolve in is this IT security market and privacy and some of these other questions are all intermingled as well. And so that's an area of, of a lot of insight um, and interesting opportunities for us down the road. You know, our customers propped us um, to deliver the largest workload on behalf of their customers. Um, how else can we uh, help benefit them? And, um, and directly and directly, and those are, those are big areas of focus. And just going back to botnet for a second, just to to, to 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 dive into that a little bit more. I don't think people realize just how big a problem the botnet problem is. Um, it, it, there's a massive amount of fraud that is being uh, uh, you know implemented with these botnets that that in turn take uh, you know resources away from the companies that are offering things like uh, seats on airplanes or or alternatively. Uh, you know, seats at a movie theater or uh, a play or what have you. Um, how big a problem is that? Uh, can you give us a little, some, some sense of the scale of it? Yeah, I mean, you hear upwards of 50% um, of what a traffic in some of these cases. I can tell you that in our experience, sometimes it's more. I, I, I think that the, the interesting thing about bots, um, let's give an example. You have got a, a limited edition sneaker 
and you want to get it out to the world. So from your perspective, every sneaker that's bought has the retail potential of taking a $400 sneaker and selling it on the, on the open market for $20,000. But what you care about is getting those sneakers in the hands of your dedicated customers. But at the end of the day, there's so much arbitrage built in. This is different than Ticketmaster's business that's been for years. A ticket concert, you know, a concert ticket can be um, can be sold at the same moment as you buy it for five times what you bought it for. I mean, anytime you see this arbitrage, you have this opportunity where the arbitrage, where, where you will get, you will you will invest in arbit in, in, in your offensive capabilities up to the point where it becomes too expensive, and then you lose all of your you lose all of your rent in the market. So this is hugely challenging. And, and, and you know, in some cases, I've seen customers where 90, 95% of their traffic, when they come live with a sale, is um, traffic they don't want. Now, trying to figure out what that is is really important. I'm talking to some of our retail customers um, in, in the fall time frame, where they had a limited supply of PFOs. And PF5s were a hot commodity. And, and they knew that they couldn't change the retail price. So you could you could sort of look at it and say, well, they don't care who gets it, but they deeply care. Because this is a unique benefit they can provide to their top customers. So trying to map top customers and limited supply of assets is a problem we've had in the history of the world. It's no different. The online experience gives us the ability to tailor it in a way that we've never seen. And so I think the answer is, it's a huge problem. Now, I want to underscore, most people don't know how big a problem it is because you might think the people who are buying from you are legitimate users when they're not. So not only, it, it has this iceberg effect, which is you know the bad users because you block them, but you also know that under this iceberg is a huge number of illegitimate ad clicks on ads or buying of, 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 of specific products. So yeah, it, it's a huge problem. I think, I think um, one of the great challenges the internet faces over the next five years. So if we look at a you know, world where um, increasingly applications uh, are pushed out to the edge, uh, and edge compute uh, is highly distributed, and the applications are built on microservices that are continuously being integrated and updated. Uh, how do you think about the ramifications uh, of the update of a service mesh on a distributed global basis and how hard that is? Um, I noticed that you know, Google brought Istio back in house, but I would think that you know, the CI/CD pipelining of microservices is where the agility and that value associated with the new coding uh, approach really gets distributed. But when I think about potentially a thousand different locations globally simultaneously being updated every five minutes with a microservice, it starts to become a daunting task to envision. Is this something that gives you an additional competitive advantage as that microservice based mesh deployed across a global edge footprint, um, you know, becomes a, a daunting task for many people? Oh, I think it's a good question. Most people haven't seen this for 10 years and we've been solving that problem for us, right? We have thousands of servers in thousands of locations. No customer has to worry about that. That's the value of servers. They don't have to think about where those servers are, how those, how those update, 
That's our goal. So we are held to an SLA ultimately. And as long as, so when a customer has a flash sale in Tokyo, they don't need to care. When that flash sale changes, now it's in Australia, they don't need to care. They don't need to care about when we when we um, you know bring up a new location, your traffic will flow there automatically. So the entire premise of serverless has to underpin and hide the complexity, which means we need to be held to an extremely high standard, and uh, both ourselves and our customers, because that's a lot of trust. And ultimately, what we're going to see is not only ourselves, but also the developer tools organizations. And that's why we're so happy to see Microsoft doing fighting with Alliance. They're going to have to be the ones to help solve this with us. We can't follow it alone. That's great, great, great answer. We're running out of time, unfortunately. Um, but I think you can see from this conversation that Fastly is a highly differentiated company with exceptionally good growth prospects. Uh, and given the recent decline uh, at a much more attractive stock price. So Joshua, uh, Adriel, I guess we didn't get to talk about the financial side of it very much, but uh, um, you know, thanks for joining us. And the people in the audience, uh, and there was a very large audience here, um, we really appreciate everybody joining and, and listening in. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. Take care.